I'm Caddy. And I'm Hannah. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club, and you're invited. Yeah! yeah! Welcome back to our series where we talk about uh, books that were written a long time ago and our feelings <laughs> about them. <laughs> September, the month of classics. Welcome back, yeah. Hannah. You've been off Thank for the you. summer. I have been. Um, yeah, and it's good to be back on regular recording. And this is the first episode that you and I have done solo together. So very it's going to be an, an exciting time. Yep. So this week, we read Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry by Mildred D. Taylor. And so Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry is uh, set in um, like the 30s in the South in the United States. It is about a girl named Cassie and her family who like own a small plot of land and farm cotton and live in a very poor, very racist community as the South was at the time. <laughs> was... Well, or... well, still is. Yeah, no, that's that's true. <laughs> they live in, yeah. I was going to say it's like more overt, but it's not more. It's just, and I was going to say violence is more permissible, but I don't think that's, ne- yeah. Uh. Anyways, it's a terrible time. <laughs> and <laughs> lots of sad things happen and lots of things that you would expect in the 1930s South happen. And we're going to talk about it. Yep. In essence, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry is trauma porn. Uh, Yes. Yeah. So it's a lot of really sad things happening to a poor black child and her family. Uh, Yes. And it just... How'd you feel reading it, Hannah? (sighs) (laughs) Yep. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. Lots of size. I mean, I think the only, the only like redeeming thing to be said for it against other books of its ilk, like To Kill a Mockingbird, is at least it was actually written by a black person. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I kept waiting for it because we talk a lot on this podcast about uh, like writing to hope and how like one of the things that we really like about YA, about tough topics, is that usually... Unlike adult books about tough topics, which frequently are just trauma porn, YA about tough topics tends to, like, write towards hope and, like, bad things happen, but, like, not in just a trauma porn way. But I guess that that happened sometime post-1976. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh, Yeah, I found this to be a tough read. Yeah. Because you just keep wanting something good to happen to this poor family and then just it's just layer on layer on layer of just sadness and hardship and yeah and because there is no hope as a reader at some point I was just like these pages are feeling heavier and heavier and I just like don't really want to turn them anymore (laughs) okay let's let's maybe talk about uh let's maybe talk about Cassie Okay. Yeah. Cassie's an interesting character. She's, mm-hmm. I think she's like a 10-year-old, like a little teen yeah. uh, black child. Um, p- 
poor Cassie is a victim. Like, what a yeah. very classic victim. Mm-hmm. Things happen to her. She She's so oppressed by her family. By mm-hmm. her, by everyone at school, by yeah. society, she's just like, and I get she's resilient. Yeah, she's very resilient. But she's resilient in that way that I find um, black women are often written. Yeah, it's um, a very sort of stereotypified, um, very strong, very like it's okay. I'm gonna bear the brunt of uh, all this violence and aggression yeah. from everyone, um, and I'll be okay because I just gotta be right. There's no softness. There's no vulnerability. I find yeah, it's true, and and it makes her a bit one dimensional at times. Yeah, yeah, she is. Yeah, she doesn't really have a personality beyond victim shit happens to her and and it sucks mm-hmm. the moment with yeah i um, don't know what cassie likes no that's it i think she likes reading maybe and i think she likes trees she likes walking in the forest barefoot there you go that's what cassie likes great reminiscent of like <laughs> you know underground railroad stories and like i i find it tough um yeah because like I tried to put myself in a position of like, mm-hmm. you know, someone who would have read this in like, you know, 1970 yeah. something uh, or the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And it's like the time of like, it's, yeah, we're just like on the tail end of like a very strong, uh, you know, uh, well, you know, what is the word I'm looking for? A uh, very strong mobile, like civil cultural, mo- yeah, civil yeah. rights movement, cultural mo- mm-hmm. uh, mobilization and all of that. Mm-hmm. But, like, as a black child reading this book, I just would have been even more depressed. Like, it's hard to have a positive outlook on things reading this book. Yeah, it does not. There's no room. I And that's why I kept waiting for... Because reading this book, you're just like, everything is terrible. Yes. And nothing's going to get any better. Nope. Despite us trying to make it better. Yep. And the end. That's it. Um, yeah, I was, I kept like, until I was like three pages from the end, I kept holding out hope that something was going to turn around. And then I was like, no, this is just going to, this is just going to be a good old tragedy. Yeah, exactly. And in the beginning, I had a bit of a, uh, a bit of a hope when uh, her mom, so in Cassie's school, they receive, yes. like, the old books from uh, the white school. Um, mm-hmm. And in the books, like, there's stickers that say, like, oh, this book has never belonged to a black person because blah. And, and, and detail the condition of the books. And so it's, like, not until the condition gets to very poor. Exactly. That the, do they get sent. Do they get to, sent. Yeah. Which is, you know something that happened mm-hmm. and uh you know we're in canada and i can only imagine uh how uh similar this might be to things that maybe people from first nations yeah uh, may i'm have sure um, the, yeah so there's very much this sense yeah. of like you know she gets the books and she's really sad about it and all that mm-hmm. cassie's mom sees and um places stickers like she goes to see the teacher the teacher yeah it's kind of a dork yeah um, the teacher's 
awful. Yes. Um, because awful. Cassie is a victim everywhere. Yes. And uh, the mom puts uh, her mom puts mm-hmm. stickers over it just yeah. so that um, her child doesn't necessarily have to face this hardship every time she goes mm-hmm. to educate herself. Yeah. Right? So that gave me, in the beginning of the book, a bit of a, like, ooh, yeah. her mom is going to play this role of nurturer and protector mm-hmm. and things like that. But then everything just falls apart. Like, it's just... There are some flashes, especially early in the book, of yeah. like, oh, this, like, yeah, but then it just sort of gets bad and then gets worse progressively. Exactly. And so going back to Cassie at school, this is, I mean, this plays into the victim thing. And this is another, it's, you don't understand why. Cassie has no friends. None. Other than her siblings. And you don't get any reason for why she has no friends. Yeah. She's just, nobody likes her and she has no friends. And why? It's never detailed. It's It really is this thing of, it's such an insular family book. Like, it's like yeah. our own little bubble is very small and has to remain small. Out of the need for self-preservation, which mm-hmm. is fine. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's very particular the way that... Um, you know, she's the only girl. She is, uh, she's very much cast aside. So, like, you know, especially a book that was written during, uh, you know, black feminism period. Yeah. You know, you kind of go like, okay. It's like, it's like the author might have played into the trope of, like, well, this is the reality of being a black woman and just deal with it. Mm -hmm. And I get that it's important to tell these stories. Um, Yeah. And and I think it's like Holocaust stories. It's like the stories of uh, residential schools. It's Mm -hmm. these are these are things that we need to share. Mm -hmm. But when it becomes exclusively about pain, right? I find that you lose a bit of the humanity of the story because it's just like, well, you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck. Cassie doesn't find solace in anything. Yeah. She, there is no, uh, she, um, in French we would say, elle subit, she just, um, she just, it just happens to her. Yeah. You know, like she just is under the, she's crushed under the weight of everything outside uh, outside of her. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing inside of her. There's nothing intrinsically uh, hopeful or positive within her. Yeah, and I find that hard. Yeah, no. It, well, it goes back to she doesn't have a personality or anything other than, or a life other than everything awful that's happening to it. And I think that has to do with she doesn't have friends and she doesn't. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I kept I kept thinking. I think it's really interesting to think about this book in in relation to or in contrast to like other books that we've read on the podcast um, about like contemporary books about racism. Wait, Hannah, did you just say a boot? Uh, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Not on purpose, but it might have slipped out. Cool. Um, I am from Ontario. <laughs> It's very sweet. <laughs> so, like, thinking about it in in contrast to some of the really good contemporary books that we've read about racism, like Dear Martin, mm-hmm. um, like The Hate You Give, yes. um, and 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 others, and and how, like, they do not shy away from how bad things are, but they also they do the writing to hope. They have their characters have things happening in their lives other than racism. Yes. 
And yeah, that's it a just really makes good such point. a difference. That's a really good point. I think that, yeah, having a one dimensional character is tough. You can't move them anywhere, right? Yeah. It's like, um, it, it makes me think of like uh, that, uh, well, okay, the token black friend in all the like 90s teen movies, um, or, you know, the token fat friend in yeah. uh, like uh, Melissa McCarthy in Gilmore Girls. Hello. Yeah. Um, yeah one dimensional, like, yeah, and- is not a human. Because if your if your whole point as a character is to be a minority, yeah, then then there's nothing else happening with you, yeah, and then your whole character is oppression, and that's great. <laughs> oh my god, your whole character is oppression. I mean, what like meditate on that for five seconds? Yeah, and you kind of go like, whoa. So all I am is oppressed, um, and yeah. that's tough. And I. Look, I get the era that this was written in, but like, once again, as a kid who, you know, I think Mm -hmm. uh, there's a young girl in the U.S. who was really recently really tired of only reading stories about white boys and their dogs and started like a a book project. (laughs) Yeah, we need diverse books. Exactly. And, um, you know, when you put yourself in that position of going like, okay, so Mm -hmm. in 1978, for example, a 10 year old kid would have read this book and would have been like. Great. I suck. I'm yeah, not going to get... Nothing no, good is coming my way. There's no room for anything to change in None. this book. And there's no... Because I think... So I think that one of the things that we've we maybe talked about and that, like, I think we found really strong in some of, like, I'm ta- Again, like, like, books like The Hate You Give, books like Dear Martin, in that they don't, like, flinch away from, like, the things that are happening in our world are terrible. But they also... Um, like acknowledge that that's not the only thing like that their characters are not just oppression yeah and and they make space for hope and for other things to happen and for change um whereas I think that this book like does the job of not shying away from all the things that are happening that are terrible yep like it does that job but it that's all it does yeah and that's not like it's like it's it's, tra- it's tragedy porn at that point because it's not. Like, this book might have some value in, like, a white person reading it and being like, wow, things are terrible. Racism is real. Yep. Um, but it has no, like, it, it, it. it's tragedy porn if you are a young black girl reading this. Heck yes. It's not. Even if you're an old black girl. Or if you're girl. an old black girl. <laughs> or if you are someone this actually happens to. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. Um, I, I was also disappointed a little bit in the yeah. representation of the black family. Um, I think I struggle a lot with that because there's this idea that um, that's often put forward that in a black family, well, there'll be no father. Um, so and here Cassie's father is constantly like he's there. He's leaving to work. He's coming mm-hmm. back. He's leaving to work. And I get it. It's set during the Depression. It makes sense. It is 100 percent coherent. But again, it plays into that trope of the absent father who, when he is present, is like hyper abusive. Like, yeah. and oh boy, is that hard. And it's like this yeah. idea that every time he has something to say with his, to his kids, he's going to say it by whipping them. And yeah, oh, I struggle with that because it's it's 
while it may have been a certain reality and and to this day it might still be a certain mm-hmm. reality that you know parents who have grown up in uh in traumatic situations will perpetrate that trauma mm-hmm. um generally to a lesser degree because people have a desire to you know have children who grow up in better conditions than they mm-hmm. did but it's very particular to think that you know the only way to express care or concern for your child is through physical abuse so there's yeah. no redeeming quality to that dad and yeah i i struggle with that because it's it's and then the mom is just like passively sitting by because she's this strong black woman who will hold this family together no matter who comes into her house and no matter what happens mm-hmm. so of course her husband is going to uh beat her children likely beat her and um you know she'll be fine yeah. with it because she is the backbone of the family yep blorp yeah yep (laughs) i love how i love how i love the size i think that this book is just punctuated by size uh, yes it is the audiobook should just be somebody sighing repeatedly (laughs) (laughs) just like heavy size it is it is about that and i think that you know, when did Roots come out? I think 1980, 80 something, early 80s. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's this whole thing that happened in the late 70s and 80s where people were trying to reclaim the narrative of black stories, mm-hmm. right? Uh, through pop culture, through yeah. literature and all of that. Mm-hmm. And through through also returning to the continent, which is interesting. Yeah. And it started earlier uh, in the 60s. But mm-hmm. there's something really particular about putting out a book that puts so much emphasis on misery and yeah yeah I just I don't like misery books I like I like I like a thread of hope right like Mm. you read like the hate you give you read all these other books that cover what is happening today um Mm -hmm. things that are so contemporary and look I, i don't think that the black condition has evolved that much uh since the book has been published or you know the time the book has been uh is set in Mm -hmm. but you know there's 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 something for for giving us something to cling to because at some point Mm -hmm. i I was really wondering like why am i still reading this i know where this is going like there is no like and then and then like she found solace in her books or and then she you know uh, came together with her siblings and and supported one another Mm -hmm. or uh, like anything and you kind of have to wonder what is the value of yeah what is the value of just putting forth hopeless books hopeless stories yeah Um, are those stories that we necessarily want to hear yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question of like, what is, what is the point and what is the purpose about writing about awful things? And I'm, like, that's not a rhetorical question, but mm-hmm. it, it's a like, I think there is a point, but the point, I don't think the point can just be misery porn. Yeah. Because I don't think that does any good. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I think it kind of, I think it says it all. There is no use for misery porn. Um, let's give people something a bit more hopeful to think about. And uh, yeah, that's it. And I feel like in the past uh, few weeks, the past few books that we've read, mm-hmm. like it's exactly that. It's 
it's a lot of like the misery of uh, little women. The but like misery, but they've got like Marmy, who's uh, allows for like hopefulness and all of that. And mm-hmm. there's 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 positive elements to the story, which ultimately ends well. It's lovely. Um, and then with uh, the Witch of Blackbird Pond, mm-hmm. you know, same thing. It's it's very hard and and it's very uncomfortable and all of that, but it still ends with the character making a choice um, yes. and, and finding comfort in a small community. Excuse my voice is cracking. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yeah. Finding solace in a small community. So, mm-hmm. so there is still that thread of something, but it, it feels like up until recently people were like, eh, children don't need happiness. They really don't need happiness. Why would we want children to be happy? The world is a hard, cold, mean place. So let's just teach 10-year-olds that their life is going to suck. And uh, I guess they'll buck up and figure it out. Eh, yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe Maybe let's not do that anymore. Yeah, it makes me think about, like, how, like how children's literature and young adult literature has changed because it it feels especially in this book and I think on a lot of books at the time that like writing YA literature or literature for children and young adults just meant using smaller words and your main character was a child yeah and that was the only difference from writing literature for adults and I think what I love about contemporary YA is is this realization that the priorities need to be a little bit different and like children and youth have more characteristics than being smaller and maybe having a less comprehensive vocabulary yeah absolutely um yeah all right well i guess that kind of uh, sums it up <laughs> i mean it's hard because there's not that much to cling to in this book other than than the the constant sense of dread um there is like one teeny tiny hopeful moment when her uncle uh when cassie's uncle at some point okay so yeah cassie bumps into some little white girl on the street and uh that little girl wants her to like get on her knees and beg for her forgiveness and cassie's like uh forget you runs away um and that little girl's dad catches cassie and just kind Mm -hmm. of like forces her to apologize to the little girl by like calling her ms something and like it was it was just very infuriating to read. Yeah. And Cassie's family joins in and they're like, yep, you have to apologize because obviously they uh, it's a town in which there's there's clan members. So they don't yeah. want to like clearly they don't, they don't want to offend anyone that could eventually, mm-hmm. you know, uh, have some retaliation uh, through lynching. Mm-hmm. Also, what the heck? Um, yep. Yep. And then um, Cassie tells her uncle and her mom what happened. Mm-hmm. And when she gets home and her uncle just like has a fit of fury. Like mm-hmm. he's just so angry because it's such a humiliating moment for, for, for Cassie. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, yeah, it's nothing but humiliation. It's just bringing shame onto this little girl. Mm-hmm. And her uncle kind of just storms out. And there's this huge moment of fear in the family, which is that, you know, uh, he'll do something or he'll, yeah, he'll go speak to someone that he shouldn't and uh, he, sh- he shouldn't speak to or address or anything like that and that he'll be lynched. And, you know, that's, that's, I think that's the only time someone really rushes to her, to, to her defense. Yeah. I actually think that that's the only moment in the book where, like, you know, while her mom tried to help 
was like it was half helping and then her uncle rushes to her safety and like thank goodness he is still alive mm-hmm. um but eh. yeah that's the only time cassie or we get to see somebody like because you get her parents being like this isn't right but it's the way it is mm-hmm. but that's the only time that she or we get an example of somebody being really angry about it yeah yep. um should we talk about um, land ownership and um, yeah such things? Because it is also an interesting uh, it's an interesting thing that comes through in the story. Mm-hmm. Is whose land are we on? Yeah, I was thinking about that a lot during yeah. the course yeah, of the book. Yeah, well, it's um yeah because there's this thread there's this important thread throughout the story and for cassie's family it is very very important to them that they own land almost all the other black family i think almost all maybe not all the black families they know around them are sharecroppers yes um but cassie's grandfather um like bought this land um like right after the civil war i think and um I am, my American history is terrible, for the record. So is mine. Um, um, these are the moments where we miss Teffer. <laughs> yeah, because Teffer, Teffer would know. Um, but, like, 50 years previous to when the story starts. Um, and and so that's something that her parents are constantly sort of um, reiterating to their children that they own land and that's so important and they're always going to be free because they own land and because sharecropping is in in essence uh, it's basically prolonged slavery yeah yeah it's uh yes basically um but Uh, yeah which brings up the the question of class right yeah and i find that interesting um having worked in uh low-income areas and Mm -hmm. with uh, marginalized populations that are uh you know very poor Mm -hmm. you kind of go like uh it is true that there's also that notion of passing on land to their children Mm -hmm. so that's very important yeah so i guess in that sense perhaps the uh idea of you know, Cassie's grandfather owning land and being able to pass it down to his children mm-hmm. assured his children um, better conditions. Yeah. And then that, you know, Cassie's parents would then pass it on to her and her brothers. Well, basically her brothers. Uh, <laughs> let's yep. be honest. The patriarchy was real back then as it is um, today. Yeah. Um, so it, it gives a sense of no one can displace you. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, yeah, land is really power yeah. in these books. Yeah. Um it's power, it's identity, and it yeah. also assures it also assures a slight sense of superiority compared to the others. Like yeah. it's very much that sentiment that um, you know, they are of a higher class, quote unquote. Like mm-hmm. they should have certain privileges that others don't, and yet they don't. <laughs> yeah. It just sucks. That's an interesting... I want to look at that, actually, maybe for a second, because I find that that's something you find often in, like, especially books of this era about marginalized people, is usually when you have marginalized main characters, they're also in some way less marginalized than everyone else in their community. Mm, Say more about that, Um, Like, I don't know. I think it's, like, very common, say, when you're reading, like, a book about a black family... They're often richer than the other black families. 
or um, I'm trying to think, I'm sure there are parallels. Um, or even like Witch of Blackbird Pond, like um, super misogynistic time. Yep. But she has some wealth and mobility. Um, and I just, it's a pattern that I'm noticing. Yeah. No, it's interesting. And, and especially talking about the lack of hope in the book, perhaps that is is considered the way to look at hope. Trying. Yeah, it's like an attempt at hope. Uh, I guess an attempt that also makes sense. I mean, I'm guessing that, um, you know, the author, uh, you know, lived through some stuff and probably, um, you know, it was a challenging era. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that there's definitely something interesting about saying like, well, there's like a glimmer of hope in the fact that they own their space. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the only hope you get. That's what you're born for, right? Like, that's all you get. Yeah. Because it's not even like there's a huge emphasis that's put on education or that's put on, um, you know, development of skills or anything or development of empathy. Where is the empathy in this book? And nowhere. Um, (laughs) Although empathy is probably something that was not the most exciting thing to think about in the late 70s. Maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. We're assuming a lot of things. We're, we're, we're giving them a lot of... We're, we're Look, we're assigning a lot of intention to this book, um, mm-hmm. which is challenging. But at the same time, it's almost like I don't want to hate on this book because I understand yeah. its significance. I understand why it's a book that is that is that is taught. And like you said a bit earlier, mm-hmm. I think it's important that um, you know that <laughs> it's important that white people read this book um, yeah. so that they can also draw parallels with the reality of today. Yes. Right. When you think about like redlining in certain neighborhoods and like cities like like Portland that are designed to be like white meccas and like in Oregon not in Maine Um, but yeah no that's Mm -hmm. it's very particular because you have to be able to draw parallels with the reality of today so in that sense I guess Mm -hmm. it is still relevant it is but I think you also have to have a certain orientation of white reader to even draw those parallels because Mm -hmm. I think that it would be very easy for a lot of white people reading this book um, and I say that because, like, even, like, I, like, have to, like, intentionally fight against this happening in my head of, like, well, there aren't lynch mobs anymore, so actually it's fine. But really um, there but, are. But there are. Like, well, that's exactly what it is, is you have to go in your head. Well, I mean, but police shooting unarmed black children with impunity has, that's just today's lynch mobs. But But a white person reading this book has to do that effort in their head. And so I don't... I'm just going to be a little bit, like, pessimistic about white people for a moment. I don't know <laughs> how many white people reading this book would do that many that mental effort and how many white people would just be like, well, we've come so far since these days, though. Hmm. There was a lot of racism in the 1930s. But look, sharecropping's not a thing anymore. Well, oh, is it? I actually I don't know anything about farming in the South. No, it for probably sure. Probably still is. For sure. Or, but or the, modern forms of wage slavery are certainly still a thing. That's the. But one. again, you have to do that in your head, that's and true. I think that there are a lot of white people who don't want to do that, and who just want to say, "Look, it's not happening this way anymore. Therefore, racism is fine." Oh, to have that privilege for ten minutes. I don't, I can't imagine 
it must yeah. be really, really nice. <laughs> and I'm laughing uh, because, you know, it's it's just something that sometimes you forget. Well, it's the everything's terrible laugh. Yeah. And and so I'm not like I'm just I'm just saying like it's that's a like I think that it would be great if white people all read this book and drew those parallels in their heads, but I don't even know if a lot of them would. Ho hum. <laughs> and yeah, I, I told you I was gonna get real pessimistic about white people for a second. Cool. Did you hear that sigh, people? Dear dear listeners? That is that is the sound of Hannah being real disappointed. Well, this and it's also just that this book leaves you with this sense of everything is terrible and it's not going to get better. Yeah. The sad part is it didn't. Um, <laughs> so in a certain sense, the book did not lie. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing also that maybe is interesting to talk about with tragedy porn is like, I'm sure there were little girls like Cassie who had lives exactly like this mm-hmm. or worse. So so it's it's that tension of like when is writing realism exactly as it is maybe irresponsible? Ooh. That's an interesting point. Or 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 is it? Like is it yeah. It can be. I like mean, it makes perfect sense. I think ultimately you want your reader to have an experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um but the experience of the reader, I guess, feeling shame and horrible, horrible, self-deprecating feelings after reading it mm-hmm. is uh, maybe not the way to go. Um, but again, yeah. I don't have like I don't have enough data or um, knowledge to back that up beyond my own personal experience. But I'd like to hope uh, that there is something there's a deeper meaning yeah yeah and so i'm wondering if this is maybe the difference between the work that nonfiction needs to do and the work that fiction needs to do word um because i think there is a place for books about this is exactly how horrible things were and are um but i think that that's maybe the work that nonfiction books need to do mm. That's the work that history books and like museums need to do Love with it. with testimony, with letters and stuff. Um, and maybe the work that fiction books need to do is say, this is how terrible things are. Um, but this is how we can imagine a slightly better world. Mm-hmm. I um, really like that perspective, Hannah. That's really, <laughs> really interesting because it's true. You can think to a certain extent how much of this book is perhaps a memoir. <laughs> or autobiographical. I, I think a lot of it. So I don't know if you read the author's note forward. But I did. Not. I did. Um, because I'm terrible that way. <laughs> it was a short author's note. If author's oh, notes are like more than three pages, I usually don't read them. <laughs> but, um, but she talks about like her father being a storyteller and how she learned the history that. Um, that like wasn't written down in books yet from him. Mm-hmm. So I think re- like I think that she was trying to write a history book that didn't exist yet. Yeah. Or that didn't exist in a really truthful way, yep. but she wrote it as a novel instead of nonfiction. Oh, yeah, that hurts my heart. 
That really hurts my heart. And it also reminds me the importance of um, adding an emotional dimension to storytelling. Yeah. You know, because I think that maybe that's the part, like, that we're so distanced from emotion uh, mm-hmm. in this in this book. Because there's, it really is just, like, a descent into, like, the pit of despair more than anything else. Yeah. So you need a bit of a roller coaster ride emotionally as as a as a reader and then that definitely makes your point about this perhaps being the role of nonfiction a bit more yeah uh, than a fiction i really like that that's great hannah you're brilliant, <laughs> brilliant. thank you i love it um, yeah, and uh, perhaps yeah. let's talk a bit about storytelling because I think that yeah. that's something that um, is a bit lighter. <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> we can we can take a turn. We can take a slight turn. Um, um, I love the fact that storytelling is look uh, being black. Storytelling is at the center of everything. Okay, um, and. You know, I am not just Afro-descendant. I am actually African. Um, and it's a mm-hmm. part of uh, my my Senegalese and Guinean culture. Yeah. Um, in African-American circles, it is, uh, or African-Canadian circles, or et cetera. Yeah. Um, it is also very important because the transmission, like, I mean, there was such a barrier to education and to resources to write things down and, and publish, et cetera, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, Oral storytelling? So oral tradition? Oral traditions. Is... Thank you. I'm thinking in French. Um, that's the, okay. Um, oral tradition is is, mm-hmm. is super important. Yeah. Because that's how you find out where you're from. And mm-hmm. obviously, you know, we come from cultures where uh, it is very important to know where you're coming from, to know where you're going. Mm-hmm. Um, the yeah. importance of the past and the legacies of the mm-hmm. individuals, but also the moments in history, the moments in time, the moments yeah. in families, uh, the moments of celebration, the moments of mourning uh, mm-hmm. are crucial. Um, so I really, I really love that, and I'm, I'm finding more and more, especially with the the resurgence of storytelling events, okay. um, that people are really a hundred percent giving it giving themselves the opportunity to be vulnerable in their storytelling, Mm -hmm. which is something that, like I know growing up, I didn't necessarily get to hear the vulnerable moments of of my family. And I like that this is taking up more and more space and that the space is being occupied by a lot of marginalized folks, uh, regardless Mm -hmm. of degrees of oppression or which oppression they live under. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is, I find that really interesting. How do you feel about storytelling? Yeah, I don't know. I really, I've just been enjoying like listening to you talking about it. I think, yeah, I think storytelling is extremely important and it's definitely something that just like sort of listening to you talk about like the tradition in your family and community, there's a lot less of it in, I think, a lot of like Anglo white communities. Uh, like it's not, I do, it's something that I've been reflecting on a lot is that I wish that I had like asked my like family members who have passed away now for more stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I like I really like what you say about it's important to to talk about where we came from and where we're going. And um and then also it was making what you're talking about about more vulnerability was making me think about this book is very it feels like a translation onto paper of an oral tradition that was mainly based around talking about the big things that happened Mm. and not about how people felt about them. Uh And so I think that is so important that we are moving towards a, I'm thinking of things like, like, like slam poetry and stuff too, that have so much of a focus on 
telling stories not about what happened but about how you felt about what happened oh yes um yes but also slam poetry is sometimes very funny to watch if we're being if we're being a hundred percent honest here I will not lie that I have had a few nights um, of just going down a rabbit hole of watching. Of like bad. Oh, like bad and good. Um, sometimes it's just the the, the, the rhythm mm. it can get real fun and interesting yeah. and funky. And I think the more you listen to them, the more you're like, what's happening? What's going yeah. on? But I still, I still also very much, uh, in, I enjoy it. I think I enjoy it live more than via the YouTubes. Yeah, I think I've, I've only, I haven't actually like seen a lot of slam poetry. I've seen mostly like clips of very good slam poetry on YouTube. But it does feel like one of those mediums that can quickly go from being very serious to being just like completely absurd. Yes, uh. <laughs> absolutely. There's um, a there's actually a sketch troupe from uh, Toronto whose name eludes me, but I will look mm-hmm. it up in the next couple of seconds. Um, who do slam poetry sketch basically? Oh, interesting. Yep. So it is a black woman and a white man, and uh, they are hilarious because they are able to tackle gentrification racism Mm -hmm. ableism uh feminism you name the ism um through slam poetry but Mm -hmm. also taking jabs at themselves each other society yeah so it's kind of a it's a really nice satirical way of looking at it i really enjoy that i'm gonna google them while while (laughs) hannah talks now well and i was thinking um like as you were saying that i think yeah like comedy is also sort of taking taking on that role in some ways of of a storytelling that focuses more on emotions um like like now that we are starting to get into the mainstream more comics that aren't just white men and comics who who talk about things that are happening in a way that is um like poking fun not at the marginalized but at the powerful Absolutely. Um, so I'm thinking about, oh, I should, how is this, um, that comic from Australia, who is the very good Netflix special. Hannah Gadsby. Yes. That's who I'm thinking of. Hannah Gads- Gadsby. Um, or like Nicole Byer. Queen. Um, and, and I think that that's, oh, now I'm just getting excited about all the different like modes of storytelling we have. Absolutely. That are very cool. I mean, even Twitter threads are a form of of storytelling sometimes. Oh, um. I'd like to hear more about about how they can be like storytelling. I feel like there's an example. Um, like a specific example I'm thinking of? Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I like I'm trying to think of examples that aren't just absurd, but I I somehow in the corner of Twitter I'm on, there there I get a lot of like threads of like long stories of things actually I think it's specifically there's like one or two people I follow and I can't think who it is right now but there's someone who I really like who just like posts like story prompts kind of often and then her followers will just respond to them and it's it's very like rich and lovely sometimes oh that's cool uh like there was one recently that was like tell me tell me something about someone you love who who has died and it was just like this thread of like people's memories about like people like just like 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 small little vignettes about like people who had passed away that they loved 
I don't know why I like instantly went into like, ooh, I'd like to read that. Uh, not because I'm a, a deeply morbid person, but more because there's so much love and care. And kind of yeah. gives me fe- the feels of like chicken soup for the soul vibes, it's, you know? It, it is that kind of vibe. Like it wasn't a morbid thread. It was like, just like, tell me a memory about yeah, exactly. somebody. Um, and just sort of like all these mundane details, but that are like really precious. Um, yes. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, just to come back to uh, my inability to remember things, yes. um, the sketch duo from Toronto is okay. called Definition of Knowledge. Look cool. them up. I shall. They're hilarious. I shall. Cool beans. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> Go. <laughs> I think we both said um without actually a thought that was intended to follow it, unless you had an actual thought. I didn't. That's, There's like a little bird flapping around in my head for some reason. Fine. Um, we can uh, we can wrap up unless we have anything more to say about um, the book with no happiness is what you called it before we <laughs> recorded. <laughs> and yeah. Okay, cool. There were a few really good food scenes. That might be where the only place where happiness comes in. I just like when books talk about food. I think that... <laughs> We yes okay so we spoke about uh, this summer we did a, a an episode about the the book uh, with the fire on high by okay. Elizabeth Acevedo which is all about food Ooh. and um, I find that really interesting because it is true that I've realized that food is at I thought I grew up thinking that food was at the center of like exclusively my family and then I realized that food is at the center of every non-white family <laughs> that I've ever met. Um, and it's true because it is mm-hmm. the only moment of solace. It's like the moment where people take their hats off, their boots off, and just yeah, <sighs> they exhale and they get to enjoy sustenance. Mm-hmm. And generally, it's the only time when people come together as well. Yeah, um, and it's true that it's such a it's such a pleasure. I think that in mm-hmm. perhaps in like, and I see it also in queer communities, like the importance of the potluck. Yes. Right? like everyone wants to break bread together. There's, there's that very, it's a very, and like feeding people you love, and also being fed with people you love, mm-hmm. and and food is a way to celebrate people as well. That's like, true. like that, um, like making the special food. Yes. Yes, um, I think I've said it a couple of times with Tefra, but uh, my love language is actually food. Um, it is, it's, it's how I show people that I care. Yeah, um, and it is what feels the most instinctual. I think it's something mm-hmm. very nurturing as well. Yeah, it's a way of being able to. Yeah, it's nourishing someone. Um, you know, body, heart, and soul. Mm-hmm. Um, without necessarily the ability, without necessarily having to break that line of intimacy, which I guess, uh, you know, in certain cultures is very complex and, and yeah. very multi-layered. So that's pretty. That's a that's a very good point. Yeah, it's like it's a way to take care of people, but in such a like personal way because because then you get into like like making people's favorite foods or. You know, like, I think about, like, my love language to my roommate of making her dairy-free baked goods because she has a severe lactose intolerance. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like... Yep. Yeah. Hannah, food what's your favorite? Food is a love language. It is. Uh, what's your favorite food, Hannah? Oh, that's tricky. Um, it's the beginning of autumn. The yeah. leaves are starting to crisp up a little bit. You know, like, I could attempt to, like, say something that would make me feel more sophisticated, but, like... Really good bread and yes. really good cheese. Heck, 
Yes. Like one of my favorite foods that I might, one of my favorite meals that I've not had in a long time. And I like need to do this soon. is just like buying a wheel of brie, cutting it open, slathering it with garlic, baking it, and then just like ripping into a baguette and then just like eating half of that wheel of brie with a baguette. (laughs) Um, with a friend. The friend eats the other half. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, that is a very, very appealing concept. Mm-hmm. It's just like, uh Yeah. I'm a big soup nerd. Okay, I also, soup is very good. Yes. Oh, I was like dreaming about butternut squash soup the other day. Oh, really? I like a good chunky soup. Like I like, I don't like purees. I like, okay. I like to chew my food, um, but <laughs> I uh, have been... Really dreaming of like a nice like veggie barley situation with like yes. big chunks of like mushroom and root vegetables. Yes, um, it is what gets me through the cold the cold winter months. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it being like thirteen bean soup time again, which is like one of my winter staples. Yum. Um, but also there's just something about like silky butternut squash soup, <laughs> and it's just like. Yeah, it tastes like Thanksgiving. It's so delicious. Uh. (laughs) All right, folks. Thanks for listening to Yeah. If you want to leave us some feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just just say hi. Say hi to us. Um, Send us an email at theyapodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Yeah Podcast and individually at Teffer Bear and at The Balesosaurus. And I'm at Caddy double underscore D. Um, if you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yeahpodcast to donate. Shout out to our patrons, Catherine Resch, Erica Stuchberry, Kat McGuire, Lizzie Ten Hove, Chantal Thomas, and Matt Deaver. We have merch. Yes, Hit- we do. <laughs> Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at Tee Public. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and by sharing this episode with a friend. Maybe um, maybe a friend that's too happy and needs <laughs> to be brought down to reality. Or a friend who really likes soup. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Or, or, or a white person who needs to be told what's up. I refuse to comment on that. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song, Jenny's Groove, as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by Tefra Jemian and edited by Tom Zalatni as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. Bye. Au revoir. On September 16, 1993, NBC aired the first ever episode of Frasier, a spin-off series about psychiatrist Dr. Frasier Crane, the much-loved Seattle shrink from Cheers. Ten days earlier, a baby was born. A baby who, we'd come to learn, was destined to have someone pay him $264 to watch through every episode of Frasier with different special guests, unpacking the deeper themes behind each episode. That baby is me, Tom Zalatni, and this is a terrible, terrible idea. Tune in to They're Calling Again right here on the Upford Network. Hey everybody, we are the Don't Be Mad Podcast, partners of the Upford Network. My name is Matthew and I'm joined here as always with... Jason. Jamali. We cover everything from politics, sports, and pop culture. 
And you can catch us every Monday on all podcast platforms. And you can watch our videos on YouTube.